Hello and welcome to Slidecast, the podcast where we celebrate and analyze the career of Sylvester Stallone. I'm your host, Craig Cohen, and as always, I have with me Jeff Ferry. I drive truck, break arms, and arm wrestle. <laughs> and Jeff Hewlett. I think we should change the name of the show to Jeff and Son. <laughs> so in case you haven't figured it out yet, um, this episode we are talking about the 1987 release, Over the Top, which um, I guess is the most popular arm wrestling movie of all time. I wouldn't argue that. Yeah. <laughs> so before we jump in, um, as we, we've been doing the last couple of uh, episodes, uh, we want to say hello to some folks that have uh, either found us on Twitter or over on Facebook. So uh, we got some feedback last episode from Tommy Gunn, <laughs> who does a, uh, a wrestling theme podcast called Answering the Ten Count. And he had a, uh, a, a some nice words to say for uh, about us on on Facebook there, and also Josh, who actually him and his buddy Bobby recorded a Cobra audio commentary, and you can find the link to that on the the Facebook page. We want to thank BJ Cramp, who provided a link to the How Did This Get Made Rhinestone episode, and I know the the folks over at How Did This Get Made have tackled quite a few. Um, Stallone movies, right, Jeff Ferry? Oh yeah, I listen to every episode. Uh, Stallone is their most often hit person. <laughs> I think they've done six or seven of his movies, and okay. they're all they're very excellent episodes. They take a slightly different approach than we do. Yeah, that shows uh, it's less a celebration and more a uh, I don't know a damnation. <laughs> yeah, it's like it, it's kind of a takedown of each uh, of each movie. But the thing I like about um, How Did This Get Made is it seems to be done in fun. And a lot of the times they're more in awe of the fact that money was put into a movie that turned out the way that it did. Yeah, it's definitely it, – it is by its name. It's how did this idea get made, not so much like this is just a bad movie. Yeah. So I haven't listened to that episode yet, uh, but, I, but I definitely will. And I know there were some folks that were itching – to watch Rhinestone again after listening to to our episode. So um, in my opinion, that's a good thing. I also want to say uh, hi and welcome to what might be our newest listener, uh, Armando R., who found us on Twitter, and we had some great interactions with him there, and he's even worked his way over to the Facebook page. So uh, Armando, thank you for uh, for finding us and listening and and uh, interacting with us. Uh, we definitely We definitely enjoy it. All right, so you guys, are you ready to jump into Over the Top? Absolutely. So the one thing um, that's interesting about this movie, um, for me, right out of the gate, is it's directed by Menahem Golan, who a lot of people probably know from the big production company, Golan Globus, who really sort of owned the 80s in terms of action movies of a certain budget. Yeah, I remember seeing that name on tons and tons of movies, and I, I kind of used to laugh at it when I was a kid because I, I didn't realize – I mean, I knew it was people's names, but I thought it sounded kind of funny to me. Yeah, I think he's um, – one of them's Palestinian. I think they're both from that from that region, Israel, Palestine, and he died back in August, but uh, he had quite a, a career as a director. Um, this really is probably one of his – most well-known movies. He also did the Delta Force, which is a, a certain kind of 
I guess it's Chuck Norris. Yeah, yeah. But it was kind of in that Rambo, uh, Rambo First Blood Part Two vein. Yeah, it's another one of my favorite '80s action movies. Yeah. If you saw a movie in the '80s and you were ever watching it, going, "What the hell is going on in this movie?" <laughs> Chances are it was a Golden Globus movie. Yeah, yeah. So he produced uh, over 200 uh, films and he directed 44 um, with his with his uh, and you know those productions were with his partner Yoram Globus. What a great name though, Golden Globus. So this was another movie that had a story by uh, a team of Gary Conway and David Engelbach, and it was written by Sterling Siliphant and Sylvester Stallone. And uh, once we get into the movie, we can talk about what Sly probably brought to the script. And I think right out of the gate, we have the Robin Zander song. Uh, what is it? In This Country? I believe that's the song. Yeah, In This Country by Robin Zander. And it's a soundtrack that is full of a lot of, I guess, memorable songs. You have the Sammy Hagar song, Winner Takes It All. And then also Meet Me Halfway, which is the, I guess it was a big hit. For Kenny Loggins. And the music in the movie was done by Giorgio Morador, who was kind of like this guy that came about in the disco era. And you might remember he was the guy that did a new edit of Metropolis, where they cut it to contemporary music. Oh, I think I've seen that. He cut it down from like it's, you know, what, three hour running time to 90 minutes, and you had like Queen and David Bowie songs in it. It's kind of neat, it's a cool little artifact. But uh, Giorgio was was quite the, um, I guess, the musical force at some point, and he does the music here. All right, so I, as I said, the, the movie really starts right out of the gate with that classic Stallone feel, and you've got a montage <laughs> <laughs> set to the Robin Zander tune in this country, and you're cutting back and forth from um, a young boy graduating from military academy and uh, Sylvester Stallone's truck driver sort of working his way across the country doing his job. Uh, Jeff Ferry, do you want to speak to this uh, opening sequence? I know you're a big fan of uh, of these sort of montages that take care of a lot of the exposition that you have to get out of the way. Yeah, someday if I ever meet Stallone, I will sit down and thank him for his many 90-minute movies that he makes. <laughs> because in this day and age, I, we are lousy with two-and-a-half-hour-long movies with just boring ass backstory that no one cares about. Yeah. And again, he cuts them together. This is the boy. This is Stallone. It's a couple minutes. Boom. All your, everything you needed to know, the whole prologue is done in two minutes. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, over the course of the film, there's another half dozen or so montages that keep <laughs> you, keep you going. Yeah. But I mean, I'll take a couple montages. If you're going to take 45 minutes off my movie. Oh, totally. I mean, I don't know when it became a rule that every movie needed to be two hours plus. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's weird that that would be the direction that Hollywood would go because historically, the shorter your movie, the more uh, showtimes they can get in and the more money you can make. And when you have a movie like like Interstellar, which admittedly um, I've avoided to this point just because I know it's it's close to three hours. And, you know, that's that's a lot of time for me to sit in a theater and uh it's it's been doing really well in the box office, so I guess they've sort of cracked that code of just um, I guess going with those IMAX ticket prices or the uh, you know the the 3D ticket prices offset I guess whatever show times you might be missing with uh, that extended running time. Jeff Hewlett. Uh, yeah, I'll just tack on a little bit to uh, to what Jeff Ferry said. I think 
if, if you want to see montages done right, you really should watch Stallone movies because this this montage is it sets up the characters really well without really having to uh, go into any great detail. So, you know, you've got the military school, you got the kid who's obviously pretty successful there. He's pretty proper. And and, uh, and then you've got Sly's character, who is kind of the opposite, you know, the the down to earth regular guy, you know, driving a truck. And, you know, these two characters are going to collide very shortly. But, you know, when the, when the collision happens, it's not a surprise to you because, you know, that montage as short uh, as it is, it's very effective at communicating who those two characters are without having to give you tons and tons of backstory. Yeah. And that young boy uh, is played by David Mendelhall, who was active from 1980 to 1990. In addition to Over the Top at that time, he was in a movie called Space Raiders. He did a voice for the Transformers movie. And he was in They Still Call Me Bruce. And he actually won the Razzie for Worst Supporting Actor for Over the Top. And worst new star. And uh, don't even get me started on the Razzies and how obvious their choices are sometimes. They, they never seem like they're interested in going against the real big offenders. He retired in 1990, but he became active again in 2007 and has been working since then. So I guess he took some time off to, uh, to be a, a, a teenager and a young man. And then when he got older, he decided to get back into the business. And before we jump in, I want to talk a little bit about um, David's character, Michael Cutler hyphen Hawk. And I'm interested in what Jeff Ferry you think here in terms of how the kid was written. And for me, it seemed like there were lots of moments where he was talking like an adult and I couldn't decide whether that was just adult writing for kids um, that didn't know how to do that. And I'd like to think that Stallone would, being a father himself. Or they were trying to incorporate the the military academy aspect. Do you have any uh, take on that, Jeff Ferry? I think not a lot of time was given to his, um, like, what they cared, what he said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, he was a plot point for Stallone's character, basically. Yeah. So when they needed him to be a little bratty pain in the butt, that's what he was. When they needed him to be the intelligent one, almost the adult of the two, that's what he was. That's why his character kind of like, especially in the beginning, he's just fluctuating back and forth. Sometimes he's real calm, cool, and collected. Like, yeah, this, the best thing to do is for me to stay with my grandfather. Other times he's like all crazy. And I don't know. I mean, he's, I, I understand he got the Razzie. And I mean, I've listened I've seen performances that deserved it. This was not one of them. Yeah. I mean, it's a kid in a Golden Globus movie with a poorly written character. I think he does <laughs> fine with what his character is. He's not bad. It's not so bad where you're like, oh, this, this kid's terrible. Yeah. He's just there. Mm-hmm. He's just there to move the plot along. There's just enough insanity happening around him where you barely notice him. I mean, I think he did what he could. It, it, it does. Some of it does reek of that. They write him a little, not too intelligent, because kids can be intelligent, but almost too worldly. Yeah. Jeff Hewlett. Well, I have to say he is a little bit better than the Anakin Skywalker from Phantom Menace. So uh, he's, he's not the, <laughs> well, the bottom the of the barrel bar. for child actors. Yeah, that, that's the bottom of the barrel for me. Um, I, I always assumed that his character was that way because of the upbringing uh, you know, by his grandfather. So you, not to spoil 
more plot points, but his, his mother's kind of out of the picture, you know, sidelined with illness. And <clears throat> it's been up to the grandfather to raise the kid. And of course, he's been in military school, which would, would I would think would make him a little bit more uh, grown up than, you know, uh, maybe a public school kid. I mean, depending on their parenting. But I think the grandfather obviously has a lot of money. He's probably taken the kid all over the place, traveled around. So the kid's probably seen a lot more than other kids have seen. So I didn't really take it as odd that he was, uh, you know, more grown up or seemingly more grown up uh, than your average kid. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Fair enough. So we get to the end of the graduation ceremony and all the kids are meeting up with their their parents or their family. And um, young Michael is, I guess, looking for his ride. And at this point, um, Sylvester Stallone's Lincoln Hawk shows up, sometimes referred to in the movie as Lincoln Hawks. He shows up in his big rig and in his his denim and his, I guess, his suspenders and his um, his shirt with the sleeves ripped off. And he gets the sideway looks from everybody there. And it's like they went out of their way to show how out of place Lincoln was at this mil- military academy, almost to the point where it seemed a little too on the nose for me. Either one of you have a, a take on, on that sequence? I'll bet you a million dollars Stallone picked out that wardrobe. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, it didn't look that out there. But he's, I mean, judging from his movies, he just strikes me as that type of person that has a very specific idea of what his character is going to look like. I mean, you see, he always gets involved in the dialogue. I'm pretty sure he gets involved in what they're going to wear. My other question is, now it's been a little while since I watched the beginning of this movie, but he stops to wash his truck, correct? Yes. And nearly misses the kid. (laughs) Okay. Like, it was that important to stop and wash your truck? Like, literally five minutes later, he shows up and that kid's gone. (laughs) Like, I'm watching it. I'm like, I'm supposed to root for this guy? Like, he almost, he hasn't seen his kid for 10 years and he almost missed him. Yeah. Well, I guess he wanted the truck to look good for the kid. (laughs) Well, the truck could have been looking good for nobody if he was coming as later. (laughs) Jeff Hewlett. Yeah, I I think this is one of those things, I agree with you, Craig, that kind of hits you over the head with the movie trying to uh, separate Sly, uh, Sly's character from the kids' world, and uh, letting letting the audience know that he's kind of you know just like the regular guy, you know, and he's trying to you know whittle his way back into this you know not not necessarily the military school world, but the 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 world of a kid who's privileged uh, that he hasn't seen in a long time. So it's it's kind of the movie stacking stacking more against Sly, and it's going to stack even more against him. It, it kind of it's front loaded, yeah, with things that are that are piled up against Sly coming out victorious at the end of this film. Yeah, so Lincoln is walking into the academy with a, a big manila envelope. Somebody calls out for, for Michael and tells him to come back uh, and that the, I guess, the the head guy in charge at the academy wants to see him. And we have the scene where Michael meets the dad he never really knew and you have this moment where the kid asks <laughs> for some identification when the guy says, um, this is your dad and you're supposed to go with him. You know, kind of interesting that the ID that uh, Lincoln provides is, I guess, a picture of um, him and Michael's mom on their wedding day. And I guess that's enough to convince the kid that he's the real deal. 
any particular takeaway from this sequence, uh, Jeff Hewlett? Yeah, I the the lingering question for me on this scene was uh, was it supposed to set up the fact that the kid hasn't seen him in so long that he doesn't recognize him, or was it setting up the fact that the kid was being difficult? Mm. You know, he did know exactly who he was, but wanted to bust his balls. Sure, you know that's a, a take on it I hadn't thought about. Yeah, because if you show him the wedding picture, I mean, obviously he knew his mom, you know, a long time ago. But, you know, did he did he we don't really know the the time distance between, you know, when the kid was born and when Sly took off. But um, was the kid so young that he never knew what Stallone looked like? Um, it really isn't explained. Yeah, there, there's one throwaway line at one point where I think it's Robert Loggia's the grandfather character that says, um, uh, you haven't seen him in what ten years, and the kid's yeah. twelve. Yeah, they throw out the ten year thing a couple times. Yeah, okay. yeah. So uh, Jeff Ferry. Yeah, it was it was odd. It was I kind of look at it both ways. I think the kid probably knew who he was, and I think he was just trying to be a jerk about it and just trying to be like, oh yeah, I want to see some ID, and then the ID is a picture. I mean, it's just like in through modern eyes, you look at it and you're like. Oh, come on. Like, I can't walk into a school now without, like, three sets of ID and being buzzed in. This, this guy shows him a picture he could have ran off with the, like, local Kinkos, and they're going <laughs> to let him take this kid out of there. <laughs> yeah, so uh, eventually they, they wind up in Lincoln's truck, and we learn that uh, the kids really, really got bad feelings towards his dad. And we learn why. Um, he says, why didn't you ever write to me? And Lincoln says, I wrote to you all the time. I sent you birthday cards. And he can't really understand where those letters might have gone. And um, slowly, um, I guess we have the scene where he's asked to pull, a, he asked Lincoln to pull the truck over and he runs through traffic. So we get a little bit of a an action sequence there that I guess... Um, I guess they decided that the movie was had been uh, moving too slow at that point. So let's the have Frogger a Frogger moment. Yes, let's have a kid. The Frogger moment. Let's have a kid running through traffic playing Frogger. But I don't know. I think these scenes, particularly on Stallone's end, are are really well done. And I think this is Stallone, the father, shining through as an actor again. Really. Uh, you know, sort of drawing on on his real life experiences as a dad to sort of impact his decisions and as an actor here. Um, either one of you have a have a take on on these sequences, um, Jeff Berry. I would say he's he's so good with the kid. It's almost unbelievable that he hasn't seen the kid in ten years. Yeah. Like if you've ever seen someone who hasn't been, I mean, if you see someone who's not a parent, which basically he isn't have to deal with a kid, especially a kid that's almost a teenager. Yeah. Like, he he never seems really off balance. He always seems to know how to handle it. Which, I mean, is fine. Maybe he's just got great parenting instincts. But, like, yeah, he never seems thrown off by the fact that I haven't seen this kid in 10 years. Like, he just steps right into it. Like, it's no big deal. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Hewlett. This is one of those things for me that when I was younger, th- this was a, this movie was an, another one of those HBO uh, staples in, in the late 80s for me, along with Cobra and, and a few other uh, Stallone films. But this is one of the aspects of this movie that I didn't think about when I was a kid. And I watched this movie probably 50 times when I was a kid, and I, I loved it back then. I never really thought that that Stallone's own fatherhood could have influenced 
uh, you know, his acting in this. But now that when I'm older and I watch it, I, I realize that it's, you know, it, it probably his own personal life probably did have a, lar- a large impact on the way he played this role uh, and, the, the you know, his own personal experience. And I, I think the, the emotion that he shows in, in some of the scenes, especially the, the tougher uh, behavioral scenes uh, with the kid are, are really well done. Yeah. Well, and the the one funny thing I think about the way he plays this is he plays it with a confusion sort of where he acknowledges that he was out of this kid's life for a period of 10 years, um, 10 very productive years for a kid and thinks that sending letters and birthday cards would have been enough. It's almost like a, an innocence for the character. And it, it's kind of interesting because they never really spell out what happened that caused him to to leave unless i'm mistaken i know it's alluded to that the grandfather had sort of polluted the the kid's mind with the the idea that lincoln was dealing drugs with which is obviously not the case is there something i missed guys or is this is it really not explained i was gonna ask you the same question (laughs) i like all he says he said i made a mistake and then the grandfather tells the kid that he was dealing drugs but he never come. As far as I understand, he never says exactly what he did or why he left. Yeah. But then when he tries to get back into the kid's life, the mother doesn't seem all that upset to bring him back. It's not like she seems like she that he did something horrible to her. Yeah. Or the kid, because she's more than willing to let him back into the kid's life. Yeah, it blew my mind. I <laughs> could not. I think this reminds me of like a Golden Globes type thing where they're like, ah, who cares? Like something happened. <laughs> it might have been one of those things where we're like. If we try to explain it, it'll put too much of a spotlight on it. <laughs> yeah, they were like, ah, who cares? No one's going to ask. Just, just move on. Yeah. Jeff, any any take on that? My thoughts on it were always that it was you know, the grandfather, uh, you know, Cutler, just didn't didn't like uh, Hawk's character. Or he didn't like Hawk because he was he felt he was beneath his daughter. You know, like a. I'm trying to think of another equation for it, but you know, we've seen a lot of love story movies that have that same, you know, you're, you're, you're not good enough for my daughter type things. And I, and you get the impression throughout the movie that, that grandpa Cutler will do anything to have his way. And I think, you know, making up stories to, to try to taint the kid's mind and, you know, driving a spike between Hawk and his daughter to the point where I, I think it's implied later on that, that Hawk gave up, and, and he gave up fighting against the grandfather and, and took off, you know, instead of staying true. Yeah, that is a, a great observation and, and not really something I had I had thought about. But that makes a lot of sense. So they're basically driving from Colorado to California to visit Michael's mother uh, and I guess Lincoln's still wife in the hospital who has a heart condition. Oh, yeah. Oh, don't get me started on this. She has a, what we call a movie illness. Okay. <laughs> a, a vaguely defined illness that nobody can explain. Like, is it cancer? Is it a heart condition? All we know is at some point she needs surgery. Mm-hmm. And and the ultimate kick in the face, she tells him to, hey, drive around with the kids so you get to know them. And because of that, they don't get to her in time. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess at, at this point, we're around the the phone call that she makes uh, or that they make to her. Right. Which one is this? Is the, this is the one where the, the kid gets snatched? That one? No, no, no. I think before then, um, is it uh, does the kid talk to the mom on the phone or does is it just Lincoln? 
No, the, the, I think the kid does because it doesn't. Isn't he asking her why she wants him to do this? And, yeah, yeah. And you know he convinces, and she convinces him to to give it a try. All right, and this is actress Susan Blakely, who we've actually seen before um, here on the Slycast, even if we didn't mention her. She was in uh, the Lords of Flatbush, and she also played the role of Iris Crawford in the uh, movie Capone which Stallone had a, a, a role in. So an interesting little um, connection to Sly's pre-superstar days, if you will. So this this part of the movie, the movie's really sort of split into two different parts, you know, the, the pre-jail and post-jail part of the movie. And we basically get, I guess, like uh, Jeff Ferry alluded to, um, a half dozen or so montages of them just driving. And they end up at a, a, a truck stop or a diner. And this is where we see that Lincoln makes, his, uh, makes some of his living on the arm wrestling circuit. And he gets challenged by um, a guy to arm wrestle for, is it $1,000? I can't remember how much money. I do remember money being involved. Yeah. Like, oh, you're the one everybody's talking about. Yeah. And I think this this sequence is really cool. I love the way that Menahem Golan shot this scene because you feel like you're going into that arm wrestling match with Lincoln. We have a, a shot that sort of advances towards the table, the makeshift table they set up for the arm wrestling match. And uh, just a lot of the shot choices just really make you feel like you're part of that scene. And we see Lincoln put his game face on. He turns his hat around, which later we learn is sort of like a personality shift. And then we get the first sort of hint of what his arm wrestling secret is, which is to, you know, bring two of your fingers up over over your thumb going over the top, which has like what a double meaning in this movie. And he pretty much wins this this arm wrestling match pretty soundly. Um, And at the same time. As this is going on, this is the point also where, um, Bull? yes, Bull? um, yeah, uh, Bob Bull Hurley comes in, played by Rick Zumwalt, and he teases the kid a little bit about his dad being Lincoln and and uh, his dad basically he, who's going to be a loser, and then he even jaws off to Lincoln a little bit and says, "Hey, let's not wait for this competition that's coming up in Vegas. Let's do it right now." and uh, Lincoln declines and says, uh, we'll just wait till Vegas. Um, Jeff Hewlett, any feelings on this sequence overall? Yeah, actually, I have a lot of feelings on this sequence. Awesome. I, I agree with you that I really love the arm wrestling sequence, and I, I love the feeling that they capture uh, you know, through the production of that, that arm wrestling match. But it leads me to a bit of disappointment with this film. I think they if they'd have spent more time on his arm wrestling career – and less time on the interpersonal stuff, I think the movie would have been uh, much, much better because I think they, they treat arm wrestling in this movie like professional wrestling to me. Right. You know, especially in the competition at the end, you know, which we'll get to. But all of the arm wrestlers that you see in this movie are these bigger than life kind of characters. Right. They're not just some kind of Joe sitting at a, at a you know, a diner bar, you know, rolling up their sleeve with a cigarette in their mouth, you know, doing a quick arm wrestling match. They're, you know, these big buff dudes that have a certain look about them. They're all distinctive and they have these big personalities, especially, you know, Bull Hurley, who 
as far as I'm concerned, vastly underutilized yeah. in this movie because Great they villain. set him up. Yeah, they set him up as this villain, and then you don't see him again uh, until the end. I mean, I, I think it would if they if they wanted to have a dual villain in this movie. So they've got Grandpa already, who's you know a villain for Sly, and now you've got Bull Hurley, who's the second villain for Sly. I think it would have been really cool if somehow there was a collusion between the two of them. You know, maybe somehow you know Grandpa Cutler had hired bull or was paying him to mess with sly or try to help get the kid back or something i don't know but um it, it seems like you know sly now has two main adversaries in this movie so more stuff just getting stacked up uh, against him and and i, I guess we'll, we'll we're this scene's getting split into two so we'll talk about um the the pinball game slash kids arm wrestling after uh, this part yeah sure um jeff ferry well, yeah, again, I, I'll agree that Bull Hurley is completely underutilized, but it's the problem they run into in this story is both the quote-unquote villains aren't really villains. They're more like like Bull is a rival, Yeah, but it's not like he's threatened Stallone with bodily harm, like, well, you know, something happens, and I'm going to tear you apart or something. He's just like, no, I'm going to beat you at this totally sanctioned and legal event. Yeah, but he does say that he wants to beat him in a manner that he'll never be able to compete again. Yeah, <laughs> like, whatever. <laughs> like, I mean, Robert Loggia is way more the villain, and he has less of a reason to be. I don't know. It's weird. Like, one of them should have been the clear-cut bad villain. It probably would have been easier to make it Robert Loggia, and like uh, Jeff said, have him in collusion with Bull. And then at some part, Bull can be the one that pulls back a little bit and is like, "No, no, no, I'm just here to arm wrestle." Yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that evil. Yeah, that actually does seem like a, a slight missed opportunity for uh, some synergy between the the two villains. Yeah, it's it's called it's it's basically the Karate Kid. It's- <laughs> <laughs> so let's move along to uh, the scene that Jeff Hewlett alluded to, where they are in a, I, I guess, another truck stop slash diner and Lincoln sees some kids playing pinball and decides he wants to introduce his son to the world of arm wrestling and with no experience and no real means to to arm wrestle he has Michael challenge this older boy to an arm wrestling match which he soundly loses and he's embarrassed and he's frustrated and he runs outside. And then we get the big speech from Stallone where he says, um, you know, in this world, you've got to basically, you know, fight for what you want. You have to believe in yourself and the world doesn't meet you halfway. It's a very sort of motivational, you know, I don't want to say stereotypical, but stereotypical Stallone sort of, you know, be your best type of speech. Um, before we get to the the rematch or the rematches, are there any thoughts on that initial sequence uh, or initial sequence um, that leads up to um, the speech out in the parking lot? Jeff Berry. Well, my wife had me in the room when this scene was on, and I was just saying what a bad father Stallone was about <laughs> <laughs> making awesome. him arm wrestle this kid. And uh, she liked the speech outside. She's like, oh, but he's giving him, you know, he's getting a good speech. He's telling him some good stuff. I'm like, he just made him arm wrestle some kid. Yeah. I was like, you can have all the drive and, you know, all the best positive attitudes. At some point it comes down to if the other person is stronger than you are, they're just going to win. Like Stallone's an elite level professional arm wrestler. So yep. 
you know, he's going up another person. It's like two NFL players going against each other. Yeah, having that mental edge really will make the difference. If I go up against an NFL player, it doesn't matter how much of a mental edge I have. He's going to kill me. So, like, I was waiting for if the movie wanted to be honest, he should have walked back in there and lost anyway. And then Stallone could have been like, well, it doesn't matter. You tried your best. Yeah. That I would have appreciated that more. Uh-huh. Um, Jeff Hewlett. Well, Jeff Ferry also already asked, answered the question that I was going to ask him, and that was, uh, is, is was the arm wrestling match badass or irresponsible parenting? So <laughs> I guess now we know that it's it's irresponsible parenting. But if it was something like challenging the, the kid to a pinball game or, uh, you know, something non uh, something that wouldn't injure him, I think it would have been a different scenario. So I kind of felt like it was a little bit, pardon the pun, over the top. To, uh, to put his kid in that type of scenario. And, you know, I don't know if that would be something, if the movie was made today, if that's something that would have been in there. Yeah, I think you'd have to find another way to do it or even make it something that however it worked out, the kid decided to do it on his own without his father sort of pushing him. And then he exactly. still got the speech. But he gets the big speech and he goes back inside and then he proceeds to beat this kid twice in what under a minute and uh he uses his dad's i guess signature over the top move and um he defeats the bullies or or the kids that were forced to be bullies (laughs) (laughs) and this is when we get the second phone call to the mom where michael is telling his mom in a very excited manner um how he won and how much fun he's having with his dad Lincoln gets on the phone, and and then at this point, unless I'm mistaken, this is when um, Grandpa Cutler's goons come up and kidnap, for lack of a better word, Michael. Yes. Jeff Hewlett, uh, any feelings on the, the second half of that sequence? Yeah, if this movie was made today, uh, Michael would have smashed the other kid's hand through the pinball machine <laughs> at the end of the arm wrestling match. It would have to be some ultra-violent ending to it, right? But, yeah, I... I this is another one of those weird uh, sequences at the end where, where Sly's having like an emotional moment. Everybody's having an emotional moment, and uh, villain grandpa has to swing in there and, and ruin everything. <laughs> but it does lead to a, a really cool uh, car chase, so I, I can't completely throw it away. But it, at least it lets the audience know that Stallone's character still has some sort of a connection with his wife. Yeah. And, you know, they she doesn't hate him, and... Uh, you know, she's not angry with him for being gone. You know, she's talking to him as if he's always been around. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think that goes a long way, at least to letting the audience know exactly, uh, you know, who's who in this story. And, and it kind of let, lets us know that, that maybe Grandpa has a huge chip on his shoulder and, you know, and Lincoln's not quite as bad of a guy as uh, he's trying to lead the, the, the child and the audience to think. Right, right. Uh, Jeff Ferry. When I first saw this movie when I was younger, and uh, I don't know that my feelings have changed, I thought uh, Robert Loggia was a mobster. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess they never really say that, but I don't know anybody else that has goons. Like, who <laughs> else has goons and who are not not only, like, just his bodyguards and protection at his house, but, like, they go out and kidnap a child. He's yeah. with his father, who is his could be his legal guardian. We don't really know, but you grabbed him at a gas station – that's a class one felony. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. All of those guys could go to jail for 10 years for yeah. that little move right there. Not to mention the fact the kid could have been killed in the little high speed chase that goes out. 
this is a, this is another scene where I I know there would be an action scene and there may be something like this, but like again, making the the grandfather not quite villainous enough make this makes this scene weird. Yeah. Like just out of nowhere, you're like, oh, oh, he's he's kidnapping him. Okay. Yeah. Like I I why is this happening? Yeah. So it does culminate in a, a a a kind of neat car chase where you have a car being chased by um the front end of a, a semi, I guess, and it ends in a chase where um, Lincoln rescues Michael, and um, they proceed on. Is there anything either one of you guys want to talk about that stands out in the car chase? Uh, for me, it just, aside from being, uh, you know, a, a neat little car chase, I don't remember anything really exceptional, um, but feel free, uh, either one of you. I was a little bit taken aback by Sly not immediately calling the police Instead of taking it upon himself to try to chase these guys down and further endanger his son's life. Right. I mean, I think it was pretty obvious to him that it was Cutler's goons that took the kid. I mean, obviously, I mean, he I would say 99 percent a chance he knew it was the goons and, and they belonged to Cutler. So, I mean, he could have easily just said, oh, I'm at a phone booth. Let me call the cops and say, you know, so and so abducted my son from me while we were you know, at this diner or whatever. Instead, you know, he further exacerbates the situation by, you know, almost, uh, you know, causing the, you know, the, the vehicle that his son is in to crash and flip over or, or, you know, could have killed his kid. Yeah. Yeah. I, I almost think that this speaks a little bit to the history that Lincoln has with Cutler in the sense that he knows that the law might not be on his side in this situation. Jeff Ferry. Yeah. Because if he's with, his son legally, and he's the legal guardian, at least through the mother. Even after you get the kid back, if you do the chase or whatever, the goons run off. You hear the sirens at that point. Yeah. But as far as we know, he never meets with the police. At that point, you meet with the police and go, hey, listen, four people tried to just kidnap my son. <laughs> yes. And I'm pretty sure this guy sent them. Could you dust that thing for Prince? I'll bet you find out these four idiots all work for this guy. So later on down the road, when all the second act happens – you, this already happened. So when you get in front of a judge, you're like, yeah, well, he tried to kidnap this kid. Yeah. And almost got him killed. But, I mean, that's real-world logic as compared to, like, okay, this scene's over. Let's move the plot along. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's like the Lifetime movie version of Over the Top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after this, uh, the, the uh, Michael, he finally um, exceed, sort of uh, trusts and um, – believes um and and you know is fond of his of his father and uh it seems like they've really really bonded uh but that all falls apart when they get to the hospital and hawk goes up to the front counter and asks to see his wife he says she might be in a private room the the nurse at the reception desk is very despondent she gets a doctor and he's informed that his wife died in surgery earlier that day Michael overhears it. He runs into the parking lot, is completely broken up. He says, um, if it wasn't for you and us driving all the way from Colorado to get here, I would have seen her before she died. And it's for me, it was a really powerful scene because I remember being this age and I remember, um, you know, I'm, I'm a child of divorce. And I remember sort of the separation anxiety that I felt certain times when I left my mom. So I, I think this scene was really authentic until Michael hails a cab and takes off 
with the cab driver not really questioning what the heck is going on. Uh, Jeff Ferry, any thoughts about the scene? Yeah, because cab drivers normally pick up 12-year-olds <laughs> who have adults chasing after them going, stop, stop. <laughs> uh, I, I, I've wondered when I've seen this. Would it have been better to do it the way they did where the mother has died before they show up or to have like one quick scene where you know she's dying of whatever mm-hmm. and whatever movie illness she has? Because it really does make it – I mean, it wasn't his fault. The, the mom told him to do it, but it seems like it's Stallone's fault. Yeah. Like, oh, well, we were having this great time, but if I would have just – if you would have just hopped on a plane or come straight here, you would have got to see your mother again. Mm-hmm. Like, as a, as a child, you don't understand the difference. It's this guy's fault. Yeah. So, like, I guess it makes sense when he kind of turns on him at the next part, but it's it was, it, it was only strange because the mother had such a small role for us. And you never quite know what's going on with her. And then you're like, oh, well, she's dead. Oh, okay. Like, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Hewlett. Yeah, I I guess that this whole scene is sort of just a way to get Michael back with his grandfather and, and, you know, create another another hurdle for Sly to have to jump over uh, to to get to the end goal in the movie. And I think – I guess it kind of had to happen that way uh, in order for you know, the movie to, to, to end the way that it does. But it, it does set up a pretty cool uh, follow-up scene to this. So uh, I kind of had to give it a little bit of a pass there. And, you know, just to co-sign on what you guys said about the cab scene, about the <laughs> the kid running and jumping into a cab that just happens to be waiting there. I think that's a little overshadowed by what the kid does later. <laughs> so yeah, can't wait to talk about that one. Yeah, it almost seems like they could have had a sequence where at that exact moment, the grandfather pulls up in yep. his town car or whatever and opens and the doors as the doors opening, the kid sees his grandfather and jumps in and they, and then they take off. For me, it just felt very like it, it was one of those moments where I sort of, you know, did a double take and I'm like, wait a minute, what kind of cab driver is this? But, you know, that's really sort of, um, you know, nitpicking a movie that's probably nitpicking uh, proof, but uh, still a very kind of odd. So the next sequence, we have the the mother's funeral, and Lincoln shows up very briefly to um, lay some flowers um, by her, uh, I guess, by her grave, and then he respectfully, I guess, leaves. And then he goes to the Cutler's gated mansion and out front um, asked to come in and see uh, Grandpa Cutler. Um, he's told to, to go away before uh, they call the cops. He seems to comply, but then, sure enough, in Lincoln Hawk's fashion, he crashes through the front gate, drives right up, um, what, through a fountain, and what, drives, what, halfway up the steps? Yep. <laughs> and he he goes in, and he gets the kid, um, but he eventually gets arrested. And at that point, I guess before we get to the the jailhouse sequence, um, anything you guys want to hit in that whole uh, funeral to um, big truck gated mansion crash, Jeff Ferry. Well, I'll go to the uh, the gate crashing. I, I was never quite sure what his end game was there. <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. Like, as soon as he drives in, he basically puts his truck out of commission. So even if his idea was to grab the kid and run, that was never going to happen. But once he enters the place, you, you really realize that's not his plan because he sees the kid 
and he's all crazy and he's just like, oh, come back with me, come back with me. Well, I can't now, Psycho. You just drove through the thing. Even if I wanted to go back with you, you're going to be in jail for a long, long time. And I also thought when the goons show up, I was like, well, he's going to fight off some of these goons. Or, or not. He just stands there and gets taken down by them. It was a strange scene. I, I mean, I understand why they did it because it's Golden Globus and you got to have him drive through the thing. One of two things, I think he should have been more provoked to go through the gate. Yeah. Or entered another way. I don't know if it was necessary for him to like plow through the thing or or have him go for the kid when he's inside. I don't know. It's it's kind of like they went they went both too far and only halfway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if they didn't need they needed to be even even crazier. Like have him go in there and try to find the kid, and the, the grandfather's like he's not even here. Like I hit him. I knew you'd come here. Yeah. Like make the grandfather that much of a villain. He's I'm I'm one step ahead of you. I knew you'd come here. Mm-hmm. Cops are already on their way, dummy. Yeah. 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 It was. I mean, I understand why they did it. This whole scene exists for the next scene. Sure. Yep. To put him in a, again, to step on him again, to put him in such a bad position. Sure. Sure. Uh, Jeff Hewlett. Yeah. I I can't expand much on what what Jeff Ferry said. I I probably would have to reiterate everything uh, that he just went over. But uh, one interesting, cool tidbit about this uh, the mansion is that it is actually. The same mansion used in the uh, Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, cool. The Clampett Mansion. It is 750 Bel Air Road in L.A. Oh, the, nice. The uh, Kirkby Mansion. Next time I catch uh, Beverly Hillbillies in uh, reruns, I'll have to see if, if I can pick out the similarities between. Uh, I'm sure there were some renovations between um, the 60s and the 80s. Yeah, I'm sure there were, and I, I'm I don't I don't think they had uh, quite the the elaborate interiors. I'm sure they were pretty upgraded, but uh, pretty cool little side note. Yeah, yeah. So we then get um, Lincoln in jail, who is visited by Grandpa Cutler's personal secretary, who basically uh, he offers up a a way to get out of jail, which uh, means pretty much giving up any claim that he would have to Michael. And Lincoln says, I'll do whatever Michael wants to do. Michael comes in. And uh, basically says, I, I understand um, why we did what we did driving cross country or, or driving from Colorado. But he says the life that I need to live and the security I need uh, really needs to be provided by my grandfather. It's not something you can provide. And at that point, Lincoln complies. And, uh, it, you know, it has to be something that's incredibly tough for him to do. But he's, you know, sort of letting his, his son decide um, who he wants to live with. Jeff Ferry, feelings on this jailhouse scene. Uh, I guess I was. it was odd that the guy was his personal secretary. <laughs> yeah. Like, why isn't it his lawyer? <laughs> like, it seems like the type of thing a lawyer would handle. Um, it was a little strange. I, I guess it was because the kid's still mad at him that he kind of is like, oh, you know, I'm going to go live my grandfather. He can help me out. I think it's at that point, it's just like, well, could it be just because the kid's mom died like literally like two days ago? Like, what does the kid want a month from now when he has to live with his grandfather again? Yeah. But again, it's just I mean, it is what it is. I mean, I thought he gets offered a deal later. I thought he was going to get offered that deal here. Yeah, it seems like this would be where you make that deal. Yeah, you're like, hey, you know, we'll do whatever. We'll, We'll buy you off. Here's some money. Go away. Yeah, it almost seems like at this point all he does is like a gentleman's agreement. He doesn't sign any kind of legally binding papers. 
he just tells the personal secretary, like, "Oh yeah, that's fine. I won't, I won't go after him." Yeah, uh, Jeff Hewlett. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, thinking back to something that uh, Jeff Ferry said earlier, maybe this is his personal secretary because Cutler really is in the mafia. Maybe it's his consigliere. Or oh whatever. wow! <laughs> you know, he doesn't, he can't do it legally because uh, you know he's in the mafia. So maybe he's uh, you know sending over one of his uh, low end boys to to make the deal, but. The thing that stands out to me about this scene is it feels like Sly is repeating the same mistake he made, you know, 10 or however many years ago when he opted to leave his son uh, earlier. He's, he's you know, bowing to grandpa once again and uh, taking taking the easy way out, maybe, uh, and, and giving up the fight because, you know, grandpa is too powerful. And, and you know, and now even the son is completely against them. So. You know, I guess he feels like he's got nothing left and uh, he's just going to, you know, walk away and, and go back to the uh, he can't even go really go back to truck driving. Really, I mean, his, his truck is pretty wrecked. And, uh, you know, what's he got? He always got left is the tournament. Yeah. Yeah. So he gets out of jail and uh, we find our, our our way to Vegas for the World Arm Wrestling Championship held at the world famous Hilton Hotel and Casino. <laughs> which is sadly no more Hilton. It is now the Westgate LVH, I believe. Yeah. But uh, it's quite a historic property. Elvis, you know, sort of did his Vegas run. Uh, his comeback involved the Hilton. You also had uh, the Star Trek. The experience ran there for quite a few years, starting in the late 90s. Um, and as you know, Jeff Hewlett and myself run a, a Star Trek themed podcast where we've talked all about our love of Star Trek the experience. But it was kind of neat here to see the Hilton before the experience. So um, as you know, um, or as you don't know, um, Jeff Hewlett and myself are big Vegas fans. So anytime you get to see Vegas in another time period, for me, um, it's pretty exciting because that's a city that changes changes a lot. Yes, I agree. I was going to mention that. I'm glad that you you, you brought that up because I was going to mention the Vegas time capsule. Mm-hmm. So always cool to see a place that we've been many times in recent years, uh, you know, in the past. So yeah. uh, awesome stuff. And, you know, the, the Hilton changed a lot since then. And, and there's a lot of really cool areas there that um, I don't know how utilized the convention center is anymore, but uh, they have a really, really humongous convention center attached to uh, the Hilton that the monorail actually goes to. Yeah, and it looks like they filmed uh, at least um, some of the the external stuff here. I wonder, and I didn't research it enough. I wonder if they actually filmed the the arm wrestling uh, convention there in Vegas. Uh, I assume that it it possibly took place during the actual World Arm Wrestling Championship, you know. But I could be completely wrong there. And this is one of those times where I I kind of you know miss the special edition we possibly could have gotten this of this movie mm-hmm. with a maybe a documentary or an archival making of or a commentary track from uh menahem golan so we'll never really know i guess um and maybe i i should have done a little bit more research before sitting down for this but hey it's too late for that now <laughs> so the grand prize of this arm wrestling competition is a hundred thousand dollars and a new custom semi truck and um, Lincoln wants to win this so he can start his own trucking company. And he sells his old, old truck. He gets seven grand for it. And he negotiates uh, being able to keep the hawk that's on the hood. And I wonder if he got to keep that 
arm wrestling training contraption that he had in the front seat. (laughs) I love that pulley system he rigged up. Yeah. So he goes to the uh, the window at the casino and he asks what the odds on Lincoln Hawk are. And uh, one um, cashier, you know, yells to the other, what's the line on Lincoln Hawk? And instead of referencing a board, um, she just sort of arbitrarily handicaps this this um, his odds herself. She sort of looks up at the sky and says 20 to one, <laughs> um, which I thought was kind of funny. You think they would have had a, a board with an established line, but but who knows? So he. Believing in himself, he bets all seven grand on himself to win. And while all this is going on, Michael finds all of the letters that Hawk had sent him throughout the years. And he learns that his grandfather has been uh, deceiving him and hiding the truth from him and making uh, creating this divide between him and his father. And at that point, he steals a truck from his grandfather and makes his way to Vegas. And I guess we glossed over the sequence where Sly taught his son how to drive, but that factors in here and uh, makes his, I guess his, his escape um, at least somewhat plausible. Um, Jeff Ferry thoughts on that huge block of movie that we just covered. Yeah. So the kid gets taught how to drive for what seems like 15 minutes Exactly how far from Vegas is the grandfather? Like, you like you see the kid steal the the truck or whatever, and he goes, and then the next thing you know, he's there. Yeah, doesn't he go to the airport? Yeah, does he? Yeah, he gets on a plane. When you were twelve years old, did you know how to drive from your house to the airport? No, and I wouldn't know how to get a plane (laughs) ticket either. Yeah. Oh yeah, and get a plane ticket when you're twelve. With. I mean, maybe he could have had cash, but even back then, a plane ticket is a plane ticket. It's not yeah. free. Maybe he said, put it on my grandfather's account. Yeah. It was, <laughs> but again, it's one of those, like, whatever. He's got to get there somehow. Um, the thing that – and this doesn't bother me, but I always found it was odd. He sells his truck for $7,000 to place a bet on himself. Why? Like, why? That bet is completely unnecessary. Yeah, if you're going to win the hundred grand, If you're going to win, you're going to win hundred grand and the new truck. Which at that point you could sell the old truck or keep the truck or do whatever, but the only thing putting the seven grand up does is guarantee that if you do not win, you're broke. You're going to be destitute when it's over because <laughs> you won't be able to. At you, you'll have nothing. You won't be able to just you know go out and earn your living. And I understand he thinks he's the best, and maybe he is the best arm wrestler there. Um, yeah, you can still get hurt. Like you strain a ligament in your arm, it doesn't matter if you're the best arm wrestler. You're out. Oh yeah. well, you lost. Well, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. It was weird. It's one of those, like, it feels like in a better written movie, there would have been a $5,000 entrance fee or something, or some other reason he needed the money. He needed seven grand for bail. Yeah. Like, him betting it on himself is insane, considering the amount of money he's going to win anyway. Right, right. That's an, an excellent point. Um, Jeff Hewlett. Well, I, I have, um, I want to go to the letters, actually. The letters and the birthday cards. Sure. I have. I have a, a, a real problem with the letters uh, and birthday cards. So if you, if you think about it, only one of two people could have been responsible for hiding them, right? It was either the mother who got them and hid them, which leads you to question why, because she obviously seems to have no problem uh, with, with Lincoln Hawk. And if it was the grandfather, why would he keep them? Why wouldn't he just dispose of them so that he, they never get they never get found? I mean, he seems to be so uh, you know detail oriented 
uh, in his pursuit of, of, of you know brainwashing this kid to hate his father, and then you know sending goons to kidnap him, and setting all of these things up with the you know, the custody and all these schemes, and I, I don't I don't know why he would have kept them. So you know I'm kind of scratching my head. I, I guess it's just you know it's a plot point. It's a very minor plot point, but I I, I was kind of wondered. You know, he—they're he, just kind of in a random credenza or in a desk somewhere. You know, the kid opens a, a hatch, and there they are. You know, all—you know, however many there were, a gigantic pile of them. So, I, I was kind of scratching my head at that one. And then, of course, we have the whole sequence of of the kid driving to the airport, uh, leaving the the car in a, in a no parking zone, and running in, buying a ticket, and getting on a plane completely unsupervised. Uh, which, of course, once again, the movie was made today. I don't know how that would ever happen. Uh, <laughs> but I, mean, I don't think he could get past the TSA. But and then once he gets to the other uh, to the other into Vegas airport, you know, he seems to, again, once again, have no trouble getting from the airport, uh, you know, to the Hilton. So, you know, once again, it kind of felt like very sloppy uh, writing when you really dig into it. But I remember when I was a kid, I thought it was awesome. Yeah, sure. I mean, what kid wouldn't fantasize about? You know, being able to travel the way this kid does and, you know, navigate the the baggage claim ramps the way that he does. Um, it definitely, you know, seemed like, you know, something a 12 a year old would do. So we get to the um, the arm wrestling competition. And the thing that instantly sticks out as sort of a huge um, look at me sign is the fact they keep hammering home the fact that you it's a double elimination. So you can lose once and you're still in the tournament. And uh, I don't know if we should talk about this now or as we get to it, but that rule makes zero sense. Oh, how about the rule makes no sense and they don't stick to it. Yeah, yeah, basically. So I, I guess we should sort of talk about the whole arm wrestling competition here and then and then sort of put everything else to bed. But we get introduced to this whole, you know, colorful cast of, of characters. In addition to, to Bull, we have a guy um, that drinks motor oil and then takes uh, an antacid afterwards. But you have this double elimination format, which basically allows Stallone to do... Um, Rocky three, where he's able to lose and then come back and win. But as Jeff Ferry just alluded to, by the time Lincoln makes it to the finals, he's already lost once. And we learn that Bull has been undefeated for five years. So at the end of the movie, when Lincoln beats Bull, that's Bull's first loss. Where does he get his second loss? <laughs> Uh, any ideas um, or, or any thoughts on the arm wrestling championship in general, uh, Jeff Ferry? Well, like you said, all the um, – I had a lot written down about this because it gets like – it goes into complete crazy world by the time they hit there. Yeah. Pretty much all the contestants stepped out of the WWF circa 1987-ish. Totally. They look like the type of guys you would have seen on – what is that? The, the superstars on Sunday? Yeah. You know, the stiff that would come in to wrestle with the, the, the actual name wrestlers. Yeah, the jobbers. Yeah, so they that's what they look like. And I also realized, besides the fact that they say no, they say double elimination no less than 12 times. Yeah, remember, keep, you have to lose twice to be eliminated. <laughs> they keep saying it, keep saying it, keep saying it, which makes it all that much worse when they don't stick to it. Besides the fact that he keeps – this bothered me to no end. They keep saying semifinals and finals – when it's not either. <laughs> yeah. 
they call the finals when there's four guys left. Yeah. Those are not finals. <laughs> yeah. And then when there's like 16 guys left, they're called it the semifinals. I'm like, has no one here ever filled out like an NCAA bracket? You don't know <laughs> what quarterfinals, semifinals are. Like, it drove me insane. It was like I wanted to punch the guy with the mic. Yeah. Like everything he said. And then he's like, double elimination. I also had written down for the last arm wrestling match when he finally goes up against Bull. Yeah, spoiler alert. He makes it to the final. There's like six referees out there. Yeah. What do you need all these referees for? <laughs> like there's more referees than an NFL Super Bowl. Yeah. Oh, that's too funny. And we have, a, I guess, a, a loss of contact that um, leads to them having to tie the competitors' arms together, which is kind of interesting. And there was something else I wanted to mention about the the arm wrestling in general that I, I can't recall now. Um, but while I think about it and possibly— Wasn't there a part where, uh, where Lincoln got hurt? Yeah. Well, and having a rub down? In that loss, I guess that, that loss to the motor oil guy. Yeah, the hacksaw Jim Duggan ripoff. Yeah, um, <laughs> Jeff Hewlett. Uh, do you want to talk about uh, the arm wrestling championship in general? Um, well, uh, yeah, like just like Ferry said, it it is pretty much a, a an homage to uh, late '80s uh, wrestling, which I was very heavily into. So, uh, you know, I I didn't think as deeply into it. So it, it you know I I've never really been much of a sports guy, so I wasn't too thrown off by the you know semifinals versus the finals and. I kind of have to go back and watch again, but I I thought maybe there was some dialogue when the the final match happened that they, the double elimination didn't count in the final match or something like that. I I, I thought there was, but I could be wrong on that. Yeah, but in general, that doesn't seem fair. No, it doesn't. But then again, it's Golden Globus again. (laughs) But, you know, and also, I mean, does anybody else think it's very convenient that the prize was a truck? I mean, th- th- are they implying that all arm wrestlers are truck drivers or would have a use for this truck? It seems well, no, like you, you would have to be in the trucker division. Oh, right. <laughs> which which I don't remember what the other division was, but there was specifically a trucker, trucker division. division. Yeah, that's a great pull, Jeff. It seems discriminatory to me. And and not only that, but uh, I, I, as far as I know, when you win something like that, you have to pay tax on it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I guess maybe the prize money is to offset some of that tax burden that, that he would have been under. Uh, had he had he won that truck, but uh, right. I I thought that the um, the match between uh, Hawk and and Bull was actually pretty interesting to watch. Uh, there also was that compound fracture, uh, wasn't there at some point earlier where the guy's arm breaks? Yeah, and you see the bra- that that always kind of gave me the queasies. Yeah, but um, I I like the um the, the acting once again. I, you really see how effective uh, Bull is is that uh, that that evil character who. I really would have loved to have seen more of his, uh, you know, matches along the way or, or a little bit more of a history or, or backstory on him and uh, kind of fleshed him out a little bit more because he was pretty underutilized and he could have been a lot more menacing and fun uh, if you saw him throughout the movie. Right, right. And we do get um, during the, the competition leading to the finals, um, you get um, these promos that are being cut for, I guess, the televised version of the um, the arm wrestling championship, and you get you know that's where you get Bull saying he wants to hurt um, Lincoln, and Lincoln talks about turning his hat around and how it sort of a personality change, and that's what I wanted to talk about was there was a period when this movie came out where arm wrestling was at least on a national stage, and I'm sure there are still plenty of arm wrestling championships out there, but there was a point where you could turn on ESPN and watch 
arm wrestling competitions. And the one thing that was funny is most arm wrestling competitions lasted about four seconds. And most of the ones in this movie last upwards of what, with the final match, two minutes. <laughs> so uh, that was, you know, a case of Hollywood sort of, you know, ramping up the, um, you know, the reality. So in between um, the semifinals and the finals, Grandpa Cutler has made his way to the penthouse suite at the Hilton. And he summons Hawk there, and he basically offers him a way out. He 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 calls. Uh, he says he's he's always been a loser. He'll he'll never change his ways. But he says, hey, I'm going to give you a fresh start. Walk away from my grandson. Walk away from your son. I'll give you five hundred thousand dollars and a brand new truck, which is um, I guess comparable truck at least to the one that was the grand prize, but a lot more cash than he would have won. And he says, all you have to do is turn over custody of Michael to me and stay away. At this point, Hawk refuses, and we get a great encounter between Hawk and Rucker, played by legendary wrestler Terry Funk, who a lot of people probably remember from Roadhouse. He's a real grizzled-looking guy. A tremendous personality in the wrestling world, seemingly has never retired, even though his his body has betrayed him. But he basically says, um, don't walk away from Mr. Cutler when he's talking to you and pushes Lincoln and Lincoln uh, hits him in the gut and then shoves him through the door and then just walks through. And it was a great physical moment for for Lincoln. Um, Jeff Hewlett, any thoughts on the penthouse? scene between Lincoln and uh, Grandpa Cutler. Yeah, it's the redemption moment I think for for Sly in this movie. It's it's kind of like the um you know the the moment where uh, Adrian wakes up and and tells Rocky she wants him to fight and she wants him to win and all of a sudden he's back on top. So this was the turnaround moment, you know, for Sly. Now he's he's kind of thrown the gauntlet down. He's determined to get his his kid and win his tournament and, you know, no amount of money or uh, r- rough housing thugs are going to change his mind. So I think this is where the audience, uh, you know, kind of can give him uh, his due and, and understand that, you know, maybe he made a mistake in the in, in jail earlier and, and he realizes that, you know, he, he can't be that guy anymore and he has to kind of grow up like his son wants him to and, and be a real man and be a real dad. So uh, I thought it was a pretty effective scene. I thought it was pretty well played. It was it was nice to see uh, even a short little fight with uh, Terry Funk getting punched and thrown through the door. I was always great. I, I love those little fight scenes with Sly. They're always fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jeff Ferry. This is where I think you could have really capitalized on that earlier scene in the jail. If you'd offered him something at that point, if that point you offered him $100,000, this is where you could have bumped it up and been like, all right, I'll give you a million dollars or $500,000 to stay away. Then it makes more sense. Like, listen, look, I'm really helping you out here. This is what I'm doing for you. And I can't remember has has Michael shown up by now? He, Michael shows up during uh, or right before the final match after the meeting with um, the grandfather. So um, it's on the the arm wrestling championship floor where Michael uh, finds his dad and says, "Dad, I, I believe in you. I'm down with you." And uh, Get her done. Yeah, so the two people most responsible for this kid's safety have not seen him <laughs> in about a day. 
and they just assume he's coming here, but he could possibly be anywhere. That's a that's a great point. Because Las Vegas is a great place to be an unaccompanied twelve year old. <laughs> oh, uh, too funny. So this is also before the final match where we get the reference to them calling the finals going over the top. Did either one of you guys catch that? No. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, The announcer says it, which confused me because the move that Lincoln uses is called going over the top. And then they say there's a a portion of the, the competition which is going over the top. So as we said... Lincoln uh, wins the competition. He wins the $100,000. He wins the truck. He wins the 20 to 1 odds bet on himself. And him and Michael celebrate. And Grandpa Cutler can do nothing but look on um, and realize that he lost his grandson. And we have uh, Michael and uh, Lincoln walking off and deciding what they're going to name their new trucking business. Uh, Jeff Hewlett, any feelings on the wrap-up of this movie? Yeah. I, it's, I, I thought it just seemed like it was too convenient of a wrap. And I, I mean, I, just, I don't know how else they could have done it. I don't have a solution. I, I hate to complain about something and not offer a real uh, alternative. But, you know, it just seemed like Grandpa gave up really easily. And all, all Sly had to do, you know, was refuse his offer and win this arm wrestling competition, you know, to, to prove to grandpa, he was an okay guy. Right. I mean, it just, it seems like all those years of, of animosity and, and downright hatred, it couldn't be wiped away that easily. So, um, I don't know. I, I, I guess the, if you buy into it, it's a fine wrap up and, you know, you have the happy ending for, uh, for Lincoln and for, uh, for Michael, but, I really thought that there should have been a little bit more of a of a reconciliation, you know, between you know the grandpa and 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 Hawk. Right, Jeff Ferry. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you got Robert Loggia. You're already criminally underusing him in this movie. You should give him at the end instead of just like glaring at him with a little bit of grudging respect. You give him like thirty seconds to be like, "Hey, Hawk, you know what? I still really don't like you, but I'm willing to meet you halfway." You know, come by my place. We'll start talking it out. We'll figure out what's best for Michael. You know, all that. He doesn't have to come all the way around. He's just got to take one step in his direction. Yeah, exactly. And that's all you needed instead of weirdly glaring him at the end. So you're saying that he should be meeting Lincoln halfway? Halfway, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So before we get to some listener feedback on the movie, do either um, of you guys have – your final feelings on the movie and where it sort of sits for you in this sort of era of Stallone films. Well, it's definitely it. Uh, it slips right into his, I don't know, just his '80s non-Rocky Rambo movies, which were they're all enjoyable, but they definitely have that otherworldly feel to them. Yeah, like um, Cobra's got that. Like Cobra feels like it takes place on another planet. Mm-hmm. And then, like, this – not that this one – this has a very simple premise, like, very simple. But, like, part of you is like, I can't believe they made a movie about this. Like, it almost seems like it's too simple to even make a movie about. And some of his other 80s, 90s movies are like that. And I like them all. They're all very watchable. I mean, this was, like uh, Hewlett said earlier, heavy rotation on cable and HBO. 
And I realized it was a box office disappointment, but I can't imagine that with the amount of times they ran this thing that they didn't eventually make their money back. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's good. I mean, that, that's the best way you can put it. it it's good. <laughs> like, it's definitely watchable. It's not one of his classics, but it's not one of those – it's not one of the bad ones. I think it's solidly right in the middle. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that we're still at a point in his career where – all of the movies that he's making are still extremely watchable. It's just a matter of whether you like what they did or not. And the one thing I really like about these types of Stallone movies are they really feel like movies that nobody else would have made. You can't even picture like a Schwarzenegger doing this, even though he did branch out into comedy. But it seems like Stallone was making movies that at least had some kind of heart to them if they were a little over dramatic at points you still got that there was a genuine feeling there um and that's what i really dig about these movies and i really enjoy watching over the top i i watched it a couple times in in prep for this for this recording um and i look forward to watching it again and and as in regards to the the box office of this movie on an estimated budget of 25 million 12 of which Rumor has it went to Stallone. It made $16 million, So it, it was probably one of Stallone's bigger bombs, if you will. Um, and coming off Cobra, which was a, an R-rated movie that was somewhat of a success, uh, I'm sure this was a, um, a frustrating release for Sly. Jeff Hewlett, final thoughts on Over the Top. Yeah, I, you know, nostalgia dictates it for me. I, I love this movie. Because of the way I, I used to watch it when I was a kid and how much I loved it back then. It's it's not a movie that I overanalyze when I do watch it. I, I do own it. So I, and I've watched it many times over the years I've had it. And it's always enjoyable. Sly's performance in it, despite the movie not really knowing what it wants to be necessarily, his performance is great. It's always great to watch him. Uh, you know, it's, it's this fairly serious role for him and and uh you know you've got a little of that rocky feel in it with the arm wrestling parts and you know the whole underdog arm wrestler thing so he got a little throwback to some of his other uh you know classic characters and although the villains are, are a little underutilized you still have some some great villains in there and it's it's still and it's a great 80s time capsule movie so i it's it still ranks pretty high in my non-rocky non-rambo stallone films Right on, right on. And I actually have this as part of the four film favorites Sylvester Stallone DVD collection, which includes Tango and Cash, Demolition Man, The Specialist, and Over the Top. And you kind of say, which one of these doesn't belong with the others? (laughs) Yeah, really. (laughs) Pretty funny. All right. So prior to recording, we asked for some listener feedback, and we heard from friend of the show via Facebook, Seiko Hearsink. And he wrote to us, good people from the Sly podcast, here with my two cents worth of over-the-top musing. In an, interview, in an interview at the time, Sly said that he would have loved to have his kid play the son of Lincoln Hawks, but he was too young. I'm sure he gave it a real a try and appears to be a lot wiser than Will Smith, who forces his horrible actors' kids down our throats in these god-awful movies. All right. Um, nevertheless, we are forced to endure the sly version of a family movie, and it is what you might expect excruciating. I'm not saying the kid actor is bad. Stallone being the charming people guy that he is did create some chemistry with him. But the brat just annoys me to no end. He's also just not believable as a character with his dune buggies and his diet requirements. Nobody eats healthy in military school. 
Hey, yo. The dysfunctional family, resentful son dynamic doesn't work. The mostly absent ex-wife with cancer who dies does not work because she doesn't get enough screen time to give you an idea of what it was like. The only one who saves the movie is the overbearing grandfather played by Robert Loggia. He pretty much stole the show and with the exception of Donald Sutherland in Lockup is Sly's most powerfully portrayed nemesis. That is a, an excellent point, Seiko. Over the Top is really two movies, the horrible family B-movie of the week and the most awesome sports movie ever made this side of the Rocky saga. I've watched Over the Top in its entirety maybe three or four times in my life, but I've not seen the moment where he sells his truck and wants to keep the Hawk until the final credits probably 200 times. The first time I benched 500 pounds, and what did I watch a mere hour before the workout? Over the Top. Stallone, in the words of Eddie Murphy's, uh, in, in the words of Eddie Murphy, gets you people pumped. Bull Hurley and all the other competitors are completely believable because, as usual, Stallone did his homework and got the most talented and interesting characters that sport had to offer at the time. Those ESPN interviews are just so entertaining. The brutal matches in the prelims were where one dude has his arm dislocated. Athletes win and lose, suffer and persevere, and it's all filmed so visceral. How much influence did veteran action movie director Menahem Golan have on this film, or was it all Stallone as usual? Um, very interesting point there, Seiko. Most of the action sequences are vintage, sly after all. My head hurts for all the ones that were cut out of the movie to make room for the family drama, like the big black guy that he beats in the prelims and that cheers him in the semis. Are they friends? What happened? Why am I not allowed to know? The mini rivalry with Grizzly, the threat of injury, the epic battle with Mad Dog Madison, the weird match with the skinny teamster, and of course the most intimidating guy this side of professional wrestling, Bull Hurley. The only reason you need to watch the first 30 minutes because Lincoln Hawks is too to face him in some roadside truck stop for a quick double or nothing, giving you some hint of how browbeaten and psyched out the Lincoln Hawk character is. How much of Terry Funk's performance ended up on the cutting room floor? Sly punching him through a hotel balcony window is really all we get. What a waste of his talents. Viewers of this movie deserve 90 minutes of full sports drama instead of the me uh, mealy-mouthed family bull hey, to attract a family audience. Over the top was the turning point in Stallone's downward slide as Arnold shot past him as the premier Hollywood ass-kicker. Looking forward to the podcast, guys. I love your stuff. Regards, Seiko. Pronounce that any way you want. It's a condom brand in Mexico, means I need medication in English, and is the ancient Germanic version of Victor. Nobody gets my name. It's why I like it. So um, a lot of thoughts there from Seiko. Um, and apparently um, he didn't care for this movie too much. But uh, thank you so much for your feedback. And if you have feedback of your own, uh, make sure to hit us up on Twitter at the Slycast or over on the Facebook page, which you can find by typing in the Slycast. And gentlemen, before we go, are there any um, final things that you want to talk about, Jeff Ferry? Well, I don't know. It's it's a good uh, like I said, it's a good movie. I can see how like uh, just like the email, a lot of people are turned off just by how. It's a crazy concept. It's kind of a goofy movie. You just have to be that type of person. If you need your movies to make sense and be logical, this movie might turn you off. But then again, you wouldn't be watching Cobra either or probably <laughs> Tango and Cash or pretty much anything in this decade of his work. It's yeah. not a Rocky movie. I mean, I think it's a good movie from beginning to end. I mean, I pointed out the few minor things that I saw in it. Yeah. All right. And Jeff Hewlett. 
No, nothing really. Just uh, good to be back doing Slycast again with you guys. Feels like we've been gone for a while. So uh, always great to sit down and, and talk Sly, and uh, I'm excited for our next couple of episodes. Yeah, so uh, next episode we'll be talking Rambo 3, and um, hopefully we'll have um, a somewhat um, special guest on to talk uh, Rambo 3 with us. Uh, we've talked about uh, Rambo Mania quite a few times, and I know – I did reach out to Matt from Rambo Mania about coming on prior to um, our full discussion of Rambo 3. So hopefully we can set that up. And Matt, sorry if I'm blowing up your spot here on the air, but I will touch base with you offline to uh, to set that up. So uh, we'll be doing Rambo 3 next episode. That'll be, I guess, our first episode of the new year. And then after that, we're going to be doing, I know, what is a Jeff Hewlett favorite lockup. So uh Those are the next two episodes you have to look forward to are January and February episodes as we sort of continue this one movie per episode journey. So as always, thank you so much for spending some time with us as we celebrate and analyze the films of Sylvester Stallone. And we will see you next time on Slycast. (laughs) 